0: Beloved, I greet you in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to first of all express to you that it is a delight for me and a privilege to get to preach the gospel to you today. I pray that the Lord, through his Holy Spirit, will uh, edify this message and uh, that it will be kingdoms, the one of light and the other of darkness. From the fall of Adam in the garden, the first murder, the rebellion at the tower at Babel, the crucifixion of our Savior, and even to this day, we see examples of a colossal insurrection being planned and enacted against the Lord and His anointed King, Jesus Christ. In 1987, the World Economic Forum was founded by Professor Klaus Schwab a German engineer and economist. The World Economic Forum is nicknamed Davos because of the city in Switzerland where the conferences are held each year that include top government and business leaders and stakeholders. In 2015, the WEF was recognized by many governments as an international body. The WEF has an astounding influence over worldwide policy decisions. On September 25th through 27th, 2015, heads of state and government met at the United Nations headquarters in New York called Agenda 2030. The Agenda 2030 declaration stated this, quote, on behalf of the peoples we serve, We have adopted a historic decision on a comprehensive, far-reaching, and people-centered set of universal and transformative goals and targets. We commit ourselves to working tirelessly for the full implementation of this agenda by 2030. On B, totalitarian, frighteningly anti-Christian, And therefore, in direct opposition to the kingdom of Christ. I'll talk more about this later. But let me encourage you to take out your Bibles and open them up to Psalm 2. Please keep in mind that uh, this Scripture is the divinely inspired Word of God. And follow along as I read from the New American State. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Almighty Sovereign of the universe, You are the God who not only created the universe, but You are all-powerful and all-knowing. Nothing escapes Your notice. We thank You, Christ. You have brought about the redemption of Your people, the heavenly kingdom. We thank You that You have shown us the way and given us a way in which we could be redeemed, the sins that we have committed forgiven, and the gift of eternal life. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus Christ's most holy name, amen. The opening phrases say, why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. I want us to uh, look real quick at those two words that are mentioned in the first part of verse 1. The word uproar and the word vain. Now uproar, the uh, original Hebrew language is ragosh. It's only found in this text. And it literally means in tumult, commotion, It has the idea of chaos or riot. Other translations use the word rage. And that is certainly appropriate. But it paints a picture overall of just a vain thing. This also, the Hebrew, uh, the word reek means emptiness. And in this case, it means worthless or morally bankrupt. And ultimately, it means amounting to nothing. So that has the idea that despite what the peoples may plan, despite what the nations may devise, their plan will be thwarted. It it will be the Hebrew people, or we could say even the pagans or non-believers. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we go along. Now the psalmist asks the question, why? He poses the verse Uh, in the form of a question, but really it is a strong statement that He is making. I'll get back to that in a minute. But in the next phrase, we find that not only are the nations, the people devising a a vain thing, but also the political leaders are doing this as well. Notice what it says in the next phrase. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together. So seemingly, the whole unbelieving world is a part of the plot or conspiracy. It is certainly right to believe this is referring to the unbelieving world in one sense, in that the psalmist states that the kings and rulers are united in their plot against God and His anointed King. They are formed to stand against the God. Of the universe. So, why would we believe anything other than this is speaking of the unbelieving? There is, but he is expressing outrage. Outrage that the world would have the audacity to take a stand against the creator of the universe. It is a conspiracy that is doomed to fail and was doomed before it began. That is why it is a vain thing. And even still, it is not a new thing. I mentioned earlier of the rebellion at Babel. In that rebellion, mankind attempted a united front to ascend to the heights of God by building a tower into the heavens. Consider for a moment, but I want to remind you that Babel followed the flood of Noah. Noah where God saved one surviving family. And through Noah, they were given commands and blessings, which has been called the Rainbow Covenant. Third, do not commit murder. So God wanted mankind to populate and fill the earth. God wanted mankind to grow in number and move out horizontally in the earth. But the people at Babel did not want to do that. They were united in a rebellious attempt to move vertically, upwardly. A prideful idea and a presumptuous one that they could reach the heavens of God and do as they please. Does that sound familiar? Satan's old lie, you shall be as God. That lie in the garden. Well, the world at that time was united with this common purpose to rebel against God. So he confused their tongues and scattered them across the earth. Anytime world leaders come together to unite for a common purpose, it is usually not a good thing. Because man is fallen and he is a sinful being. A creature of the world. And we know that the world is under the influence of Satan. Therefore, under the influence of Satan, you can bet that he will direct them to rebel against God. David tells the basis of their plot. And he says, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we will not bow down to you, God. We will not worship you. And so they forsake God and are in essence their own gods. Now let me return to the United Nations and the WEF's Agenda 2030 and their plans for the world. The Agenda 2030 plans to accomplish their goals by focusing on five critical dimensions. People, prosperity, planet, partnership, and peace, also known as the five Ps. Now let me... uh, Describe this in a little more detail. For instance, for people, the idea is their plan is to end poverty and hunger for all. Now that seems like a worthwhile goal to end poverty for all, but it comes at a cost. All of these come at a cost, which you'll see in a little bit. The next is planet. To protect the planet from degradation. The third is prosperity, to ensure all human beings can enjoy prosperous and fulfilling lives and that economic, social, and technological prog- progress occurs in harmony with nature. Fourthly, peace, to foster peaceful and inclusive societies. Not only have a cost, but there are ominous things behind the things that are mentioned here. At face value, these ideas all seem to be worthwhile. But once they are unpacked, there is a revelation of a more sinister aspect of their plans. Keep in mind, not only is the World Economic Forum behind this, but the United Nations as well. Agenda 2030 hopes to achieve the five Ps through 17 goals of sustainable Development And by the way, anytime you hear the words used in a phrase, sustainable development, it's not a good thing. It has this idea of aggressive environmentalism that seeks to implement totalitarian policies that ultimately remove the liberties granted by our U.S. Constitution and the constitutions of other democratic Governments in the world. Well, this should raise all kinds of flags in your mind. Let's go over those 17 sustainable development goals. Goal number one fits in line with the first P, which is in poverty in all forms everywhere. How do they accomplish that? Well, somebody's got to pay for it. Somebody's got to give so that this happens. In the United States, for example, we see all kinds of government programs that are designed to be well-meaning at face value, but sometimes they come at a cost that is detrimental to our country. We are currently at $29,800,000,000,000 in our national debt we expect to go over to $30 trillion by the end of this month. That's a scary thing. Who's going to pay for that? What's going to happen? How far can this go? But it's not just dealing with poverty that this has become such a problem. Goal number two also says, end hunger, achieve food security, and improved nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. Worthy goal. Number three, ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages. Number four, ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. Number five, achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. That's a curious one to me, specifically how it's worded. Gender equality uh, might be a good thing, but that's not what they're really meaning. But they also talk about equity, and equity is a word that you should also watch out for because it has nothing to do with equality. It, It has nothing to do with an equal playing field. Goal six, ensure availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all. Number seven, ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. Promote sustained, inclusive, and sustainable economic growth, full and productive employment, and decent work for all. Number nine, rebuild resilient infrastructure, promote inclusive and sustainable industrialization, and foster innovation. Number nine, Number fourteen, conserve and sustainably use the oceans, seas, and marine resources for sustainable development. Fifteen is protect, restore, and promote sustainable what that means. I, I'm not quite sure what all that means. Number 16, promote peaceful and inclusive societies for sustainable development, provide access to justice for all, and build effective, accountable, and inclusive institutions at all levels. And lastly, strengthen the means of implementation and revitalize the global partnerships for sustainable development. So once again, many times through this, we have that phrase, sustainable development and it should raise all kinds of red flags for us. Now, when you look at this and the other things that they have uh, put forward, not only on their website, but in their official documents, uh, one has to wonder how they hope to achieve this, and believe it or not, they do have a plan of implementation. They are already doing it. They have been doing it for quite some time. Now, this, keep in mind, was all done before COVID-19 came along. Now, COVID-19 has helped them in many respects in, in moving along in their agenda. Let us turn back to the text. And I'm reminded as I think about these things, as we see all the things that are going on in the political world and in the economic world i'm reminded of what the prophet says in habakkuk 1:5 and peter also quotes this in uh, acts chapter 2 where they say look among the nations be astonished and wonder because i'm accomplishing a work in your day which you will not believe even though you were told and we can look around and certainly see plenty of things that are going on, not only in our country, but in the world around, that are truly astonishing. They are fearful in many ways. Jesus has directed us, though, to not keep our eyes on the roaring of the seas and the waves, to put our, but to put our trust, our hope, and our confidence in Him and in Him alone and he will see us through. Now, secondly, the second point in our outline here is God's providential appointment. And David the psalmist here in verses 4 through 6 states this: He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. This their plans are vain. He knows that they can't possibly accomplish the things that they want to do. Just like those at Babel. The word here for sits, he who sits, as it is used here is yeshav, which is a metonym that has the idea of sitting enthroned. It is also used in Psalm 9-7. But the Lord in the Lord and even take up His offenses. He knows here that God is not threatened in any way by those who come up against him. David is like a spectator here. And even though this psalm applies to him in the fact that he was the first in a Davidic lineage, and so the psalm applies also to them as well to some extent, this could stand against him. God will not passively sit back forever and allow His name to be profaned, nor His authority. To be challenged. And we see this all through Scripture. God has a plan. And it is a plan that was from the very foundation of the world. From the foundation of the world, God has prepared for the rebellion of the nations. And beloved, thank God, He has prepared for our rebellion too. The third thing that we need to see is God's reward to the obedient, verses 7 through 9. The psalmist proclaims, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. The decree David is referring to is in Puritan and Reformed theological study called the covenant of redemption. The songs we sang today were so appropriate for what I'm speaking about today. There were some divines who taught that the covenant of redemption is a part of the covenant of grace, while others said that this could not be since the covenant of redemption is eternal while the other is temporal. If you look at the Westminster Standards, for instance, or the Savoy Declaration, there are statements about these covenants. The second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 refers to the covenant of grace specifically by name, saying this. This is in chapter 7, by the way. Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein He freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in Him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit in that eternal covenant. This covenant, the confession goes on to say, is revealed in the Gospel First of all, to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. And afterwards, by farther steps, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant. So the covenant of redemption is what David is specifically talking about in verses 7-9. through 9, Clearly spelling out that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is the appointed King of Zion. In this covenant is Christ's obedience. And in this covenant, our redemption was secured. Dutch theologian Herman Witsius lived from 1636 to 1708, said the covenant between the Father and the Son is the foundation of the whole of our salvation. David goes on and he quotes, or he says, He said to me, Thou art my Son, today I have begotten Thee. Now, lest we develop a false doctrine here, be assured this statement in no no way, no means that Jesus Christ is a, a created being being just created because it says, today I have begotten thee. This is the Father speaking to the Son. He goes on and says, thou art my Son, And it's based upon the Davidic lineage that I spoke about earlier. The lineage of the kings. All that were in that line were referred to as sons in a father-son relationship. This is the understanding that we must have. This is also quoted numerous times in the New Testament as well by the New Testament writers in Hebrews. Now Samuel Rutherford in his great Puritan work, The Covenant of Life, 1655, said this, The eternal nature of the covenant of redemption means that God had already provided the solution to Adam's fall even before he fell. Now that is a glorious thing to think about. And it is a wonder that we find also described in other but what is in it in this covenant of redemption is for Christ. What benefit is His obedience? What does He derive from this? believe are the Father's gift to the Son? Hebrews 12.2 puts it this way, It was for the joy set before Him. It was for the joy set before Him that Christ endured the cross and while despising the shame he endured the cross Christ's inheritance is all is for all those he redeemed because he was obedient to be their redeemer and mediator Jesus said in John 6:39 and 40 this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Dr. Joel Beakey states that there is a substitutional agreement among Reformed theologians that in the covenant of redemption, Christ acts as a surety for His people, mediating only on behalf of those who the Father gives to Him. The psalmist goes on and he says, Ask of Me and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. So here we see the Father telling the Son what He is to receive as a result of His agreement to fulfill the covenant of redemption as a party to it. And as a result of His obedience as well. His obedience to die on the cross for our sins. Revelation 21 and 22 refers to the people of God, those who are redeemed by Christ as nations. Now, nations is used in other contexts to apply uh, for unbelievers as well. But when you look at Revelation 21 and 22, uh, this is getting close to time, eternal, future, and so this applies specifically to uh, God's people and it describes those chapters describe how they will enjoy the beauty and the joy of his kingdom it will be a kingdom that will never end it will be a kingdom that we are continually rejoicing and worshiping god because of his abundant mercy toward us in the forgiveness of our sins and providing a means for us to escape hell and the and the eternal death for those who do not believe. And for those who do not believe, there is a promise here. For those who are in a rage and who are plotting these evil plans against God and His Son, there is a promise here. And He says to the Son, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now the rod of iron in these verses is mentioned several places it's also mentioned in revelation as well. The rod of iron prophecy is the eternal degree or in the eternal de- degree finds its fulfillment in the book of revelation revelation two twenty seven twelve five and nineteen fifteen The rod of iron is essentially a scepter that represents rule, power, and judgment, but notice. The last phrase. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. This is the idea not only of judgment, but judgment of the unredeemed. This could be a a latter messianic idea and some might even say post-tribulational. Those who set themselves the ease with which that judgment is delivered. There is this imagery of crumbling pottery That should strike fear in all those who refuse to obey the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To repent and trust Him as their only means of salvation. And that brings us to the fourth point, which is God's warning to the nations. He goes on and He says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. In these verses, God warns the kings and judges of the earth to show judgment and discernment and wisdom. To take warning. It's an example of God's unfailing patience and mercy to people. To bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But the threat is that failing to do so, they will be among those who perish in the way. There is a time element involved here. A second threat that the Son's wrath may soon Be kindled. Yet the arm of mercy is still extended with the promised blessing to all who take refuge in Him. So I want you to understand that when we speak in terms, when the Bible speaks in terms of nations, we're not just talking about groups, but we're talking about individuals for individuals make up the part of the larger whole. The warning is to anyone who has not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. In Romans 5.8, Paul tells us that God demonstrated His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is this promise, this gift, that awaits those who will repent of their sins. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. These Scriptures tell us that there is a threat of punishment if we don't believe, but there is a promise of blessing if we do. My encouragement to you today is if you are here and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you repent of your sins and that you seek His forgiveness in prayer, that you call upon His name while there is still time. Scriptures tell us that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But there is also a blessing. The blessing of eternal life. The free gift that is given to those who repent and believe. Repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ is the doorway to eternal life, to eternal joy, and eternal peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died to redeem His people, so let me encourage you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You that from the beginning of time, You have provided a way of escape. Not only from our sin, from, but from Your wrath. We thank You, Lord, that in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, You have redeemed a people. A people who had the wonderful privilege and blessing to eventually inherit the kingdom of heaven. God, I pray that the ministry of this church and its people would be so committed to reaching the lost through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the preaching of his word. And I believe that we are making great progress in that direction. Thank you so much for the servants of God who are are here and among us. Bless our efforts, Lord, and and help us to be united in the faith that You have given us. We give You praise and thanks in the most holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.